0: Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K DVD.com. We're also brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. It's the number one choice of horror fans worldwide. Nothing starts your day or night better than a delicious cup of Deadly Grounds. Whether you're hunting ghosts or fighting the next zombie apocalypse, any one of Deadly's 30-plus roasts will bring you to caffeine nirvana with the richest flavor you've ever had. Whether you're craving their Hellhound Roast, Witch's Brew, Devil's Night Roast, or Sinful Delight, Order online at getdeadly.com for easy and safe shipping right to your door. We know that once you go deadly, you won't go back. Join the deadly revolution today. Be bold, be different, be deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee, coffee to die for and zombie approved. Get some at getdeadly.com. <laughs> Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Ryan Spindell is a writer-director who recently made his feature debut with the fantastic horror anthology, The Mortuary Collection, now streaming on Shudder. Mortuary Collection blends all the nostalgic elements of anthologies like Tales from the Crypt, Body Bags, and Creepshow, but with spooky atmospheric nods to vintage horror, all while packing a serious punch with its comedy, storytelling, and overall dedication. Sam Raimi has been a very outspoken fan of Mortuary Collection, which currently holds a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Beyond that, it's without a doubt one of my favorite movies of 2020. It is a must-see. Ryan and I discussed the long seven-year journey for getting this movie made and did a fair amount of geeking out along the way. There's some killer lessons here, and I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Now, please give it up for Ryan Spindell. Ryan Spindell, good to see you, man.
1: Dude, this is so cool. I'm a big fan.
0: I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I've really, really been looking forward to talking to you. Mortuary Collection was... Mind-blowingly fun and just minute-to-minute fun and funny and exciting and hilarious and just all the kind of horror tropes that we love from way back in the day in a modern way that it it reminds me of 80s movies, but it doesn't feel blatantly throwbacky. you know? It's still shot in a really modern way, but the scope of this movie is pretty incredible. I mean, it's super duper ambitious. I have like a thousand questions, but just overall, well, first of all, what does it feel like to have finally launched this movie? Because it sounds like it's been in the making for quite some time.
1: It's it's incredible. I mean, this is a movie that I wrote in 2012. Uh, I wrote it as an anthology feature, first and foremost, because it's a format that I I love uh, very much. And uh, then when it didn't seem like it was possible for us to get an anthology feature made because they are incredibly difficult uh, i would warn anybody who wants to make an anthology movie that it is not something that you're going to easily get financed as of this given time that we're mm. recording this um but because we would made a lot of shorts in the past we uh we knew how to do that and so we could take one piece of the of the movie and make it so we made uh, the babysitter murders which is one of the stories way back in 2015. Uh, and then a year later, we got a little bit of money and we started cobbling together the rest of the movie over the course of two years. And then we premiered at Fantastic Fest last year. And uh, and we got picked up by Shudder right away, which was fantastic and exciting. Nice. And we had a nice, healthy um, film festival tour all lined up. The idea was traveling the world and meeting interesting filmmakers and seeing the movie with audiences. And, of course, COVID-19 happened. And oh. All of those were canceled. And so... After sitting on this movie just being done um, for over a year now, it's uh, this has been a long time coming. So it's sort of surreal. This is the longest answer to the simplest question, but it's it's actually surreal that it's it's finally out there in the world because it's sort of um, – it's been something we've just been it, It's almost, – we're almost numb to it. But yeah. the thing that, that I'm definitely not numb to is the response we've been getting. Um, it, I've been in, in a bubble for so long, you don't really know if if the movie you made even works for people, and you really can't tell – uh, until it starts sort of getting out there and, and being shown to the people you made it for. And mm-hmm. some of the responses have been overwhelming. I mean, there was a, it's interesting because the, the reviews are awesome and I, I love the reviews and some of them are, are so beautifully written and I'm, I'm like learning about myself and the movie <laughs> that I made through the reviews, which is really exciting. But I think it's like, it's it's the personal, the personal messages yeah. that you get. It's the, somebody wrote a, a post on Facebook today where she just talked about how inspiring the movie was to her and 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 i realized that she was exactly who the movie was made for and to have sort of that kind of impact on somebody is like is more than anybody i think can ever hope to achieve and and i'm i'm sort of i'm just humbled by the whole experience
0: that's great because yeah you make a movie like that for very specific fans and i'm sure you are that type of fan so to get that sort of resonance with the right person i mean that's got to be worth worth the whole thing right there
1: I mean it yeah, and it's when you take everything else away, when you take this idea of money and I, I guess at one point in time people thought that filmmaking was glamorous. I'm not sure if that's the case anymore, but <laughs> uh, I think when you take all that away and you remember why you started it to begin with, uh, and the craft of filmmaking and the the art behind it all. Um, I don't know. It's it's sort of like I, I'm still sort of processing it all right now and I, I'm just I'm grateful for for what success we've had so far. And if it ends today, I, I will be happy.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm heartbroken that you were cheated out of a theatrical run, you know, or at least being able to see the movie in a theater with an audience during the festival run. I mean, this would have been such a blast to see live. I don't mean to rub it in, but I mean, now having seen it, I just can't help but think, fuck, it would have been great to have seen that with a live audience, you know, it's yeah, just it, such it, an it, audience pleaser. It is. A,
1: it is an audience. It is an audience movie. I mean, and that's the, the kind of like you know one of the things that i love about the anthology format the anthology format doesn't quite isn't tied down by the same rules that a mm-hmm. lot of the, the more traditional format is and it, it's a playground and that's what i loved about creep show i loved the the animation and yeah. the sort of wild lighting swings and the sort of over-the-top characters like i love that kind of stuff and, and this was definitely sort of like a place to play and really think about audience expectations and and sort of what they expect and how can we subvert that and how can we shock them and how can we hold things back and then give them too much and sort of um, – but that's that's all movies I guess. And I do think that when I wrote this movie – I mean I remember when I decided to write this movie and I knew it was never going to be a th- theatrical movie. It just mm-hmm. – it's not – I don't think people are the, – the format itself, even if you made the best anthology in the world, I don't know if the audience is ready for it to – to be lit to sort of at a theatrical level. Right. And so, so yeah, I don't know if I was ever expecting that, but I did, I I did really look forward to film festivals and, and meeting my peers and the people who I see uh, releasing movies right now at the same time, who I would have imagined I would sort of be able to get drinks with and sort of commiserate over the the pains of the filmmaking process. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, obviously once this all lifts, there'll be, there'll be more festivals for sure. Yeah. Yeah, but sure. it still of sucks. Sure. I mean, it still really, really does suck for sure. I just
1: need seven more years to make another movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this took seven years, all in all.
1: Oh, I mean, even I mean, maybe longer. Yeah, it was it was it was quite a process. It was somebody joked it was like the the boy of horror movies.
0: Th- did the boy take a long time to the make? Boy,
1: uh, wait, is it the boy? What is the one with um uh, the Richard Linklater movie?
0: Boy. Um not spanking the monkey that was uh like no, it's,
1: it's the one that he that he shot over the course of uh, of several years where the where the kid grows
0: up. oh that's right ethan hawk is in it i totally forgot i totally forgot yeah i love ethan hawk by the way can we just talk about how great i know he is? ethan hawk is great i wish there were more sinister movies yes i wish to god there were i wish there were i think the sinister movies i enjoy those more than the insidious movies i think the sinister movies are terrifying there was some horror movie um there was some article that came out about the scariest horror movies of all time based mm-hmm. on they did these readings on people and they actually looked at how their their heartbeat would respond and their overall stress response to movies. Sinister was number one. Really? Yeah. It wow. caused more angst and, and actual f- tension in people than any other. And they did, I mean, they didn't do every horror movie, but they did all the major ones, you know, Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw, all of that. And people were more scared by Sinister than anything. Their That's body awesome. responded more is that is that? Would you say that's yours?
1: Your scariest movie experience?
0: Definitely not sinister. No, I. I mean, Exorcist for sure. And everybody says that, you know. But I. I saw it at such a young age. Still impressionable. Still yeah. was kind of kind of borderline religious. I was raised semi-religious, so I still believed some of that at that time. So yeah. I kind of I kind of just went with it. And then I thought I felt my bed shake, and uh, I was young. I was like twelve <laughs> years old, and it just to me there was this, I grew up on a show called Sightings which did you ever see Sightings? I don't think so, no. It was like a precursor for the X-Files. So there was okay. Sightings was basically it was they basically positioned it as a news program where they had it was kind of like Rescue 911 for paranormal like experiences. Uh-huh. And every and they would have people giving their first-hand experiences with paranormal entities and Every single week it was something different. Like it was it was ghosts one week. It was killers another week. It was aliens one week. Chupacabra one week. And so every week it was I had like something else to be afraid of. Like I was petrified like of aliens to for a long time. What's that? That
1: sounds, that sounds like a great show. I'm surprised I know. We tried to reboot it. That sounds really cool. It
0: would be great to reboot. Yeah, I'm trying to find the old episodes. It was the inspiration for the X Files because of the population of that show. They said, "How do we spin this into something scripted?" That became the X Files. Oh, but. Amazing. Yeah, it was so frightening. But then they had one episode on demonic possession and that blew my mind. Because anything else you can outrun, but you can't outrun something like a demon that's inside yeah. of you. So that scared the yeah. fuck out of me. Then I saw because it was total, you know, masochist, saw the exorcist, and then that <laughs> that just totally fucked me it's up funny. for a I, while.
1: I think the exorcist is so fucking scary but i am not a religious person i was not relate, raised religious at all so it doesn't have that sort of extra level for me that it had for so oh, no. many people I you know um I can't, i'm kind of envious but i'm not i'm glad i wasn't raised religious but i'm envious that i don't get to feel that like deep like
0: <laughs> yeah i was saying some hail mary's that night for sure
1: <laughs> oh yeah oh, I bet. I
0: bet. <laughs> was there a movie that was that for you that like super traumatizing at a young age
1: yeah, I mean, I had mine's actually a little cliche as well. It's uh I saw Nightmare on Elm Street when I was like five. Whoa! And that was, it was like kind of a mistake. My dad had had this friend who would always give us boxes of VHS bootleg movies, and my dad didn't even, never even looked through them. So us, me and my siblings would dig out the sort of movies, and I remember watching it when I was five, and it like it actually turned me off of horror movies for most of my young life really, I didn't really do it until i was probably 12 or 13 yeah it, wow. it really affected me but um the most visceral movie that i've ever experienced and this is again a time and a place is the the remake of the ring which i know is kind of a
0: a controversy really? of, i haven't even uh, seen that
1: you haven't seen the remake of the ring seen, well,
0: oh that? no the, the american version of the ring the Ringu. Version. oh yeah yeah i have seen yeah that. yeah they yeah. just did a new one last year that's the one i thought you were talking about but no just the ring yeah with yeah, Naomi it, watts that one
1: the Naomi Watch one, I, and it's funny. Like I, people swing. Some people are like, "I hated it," and some people are like, "It's so scary." But I, I literally remember gripping the armrest in the in the theater. It was <laughs> so it was so intense to me, and I don't know why it just hit the, the perfect time. I think I was like a freshman in college or something. Oh, nice.
0: Crazy. Yeah, the imagery in that is is pretty amazing. I just watched it recently, and it holds up. Totally holds up to this day.
1: I'll go to bat for Gore Verbinski for all of his movies, including The Lone Ranger. I'm
0: saying it here. I now. thought The Lone Ranger was perfectly good. I don't know why I got I such bad reviews. It was like a, it was a Western Pirates of the Caribbean, It even had Johnny Depp in it. It was just as good as the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels. I'll put it that
1: it's way. It's so fun, man. It has some of the best set pieces. I have so many friends that are like, that movie's garbage. I'm like, did you see it? And nobody's actually seen it. I think we're the only two people that saw it.
0: I think so too. I think <laughs> it's just us. Johnny Depp should write to both of us just he a thank should. you letter. I'm so how how did the movie come together? I mean, could you, I know it was a long time, but can you walk us through the process of you know original idea to getting this thing made? And <laughs>
1: uh, sure, yeah, I, I mean, I I had been in L.A. for a few years, uh, and I had been I'd written a couple of scripts that I was really proud of, um, and they were in development. And I I was this one specific script that was like a very hard R. Uh, horror movie and the the note i kept getting was yeah make it more teen make it more teen and it was set in high school hmm. i was getting so frustrated with that note and just kind of disenfranchised in general with what horror was at the time yeah uh and I'd, i you know i i always loved creep show but i'd also been like getting into the old amicus anthology films uh from england and um i was really loving the format and i started thinking about like well What's a format that I love that like nobody's doing? Again, keep in mind, this is 2012. Like, yeah. The anthology, before it sort of started hitting its heyday again. And I was thinking a lot about short stories and how much I love Ray Bradbury's short stories and Stephen King's short stories and Richard Matheson, uh, who's an amazing writer who wrote so many of the original Twilight Zones. And I was like, I, I think horror works so good as, in short format. Is there a way I can package it so I can kind of get these shorts to a wider audience? Because yeah. at the time... You could really only see shorts at film festivals uh and so i wrote the the, the mortuary collection which basically i had a, a big document of short ideas and i took my four favorite ones and i started working on the wraparound and uh, the wraparound story the, one of my big complaints of a lot of anthology movies especially when i started getting into them and watching everything was the wraparound stories tend to be these kind of like weak bookends that are sort yeah. of afterthought and so i started thinking a little bit more about uh you know, th- these characters, these narrators who are telling us these stories, the crypt keeper, you know, he we, we go into his, his crypt and he tells us a story and he performs and he does the puns and we have a good time, but what happens when we leave? Like, is he sad? Is he lonely? Is he trapped? Mm-hmm. Like, why is he telling us these stories? And I think through doing mm-hmm. that, I started to unpack some interesting, uh, sort of, maybe some interesting character sort of bits that could be part of, a, of an onion, you know, unpeeling the onion on that character. And that's what what would happen if that character was supernaturally bound to that place and, and forced to tell these stories um, as part of some sort of larger karma? Yeah. Sort of, uh, sort of pay, paying for sins committed, um, and so that sort of really got me excited about the wraparound and really started to develop that. And, and that actually became kind of the primary story, and the vignettes themselves kind of became not one-offs because they're they're a meat of the movie. They're the meat of the movie, but yeah. they're but not the sort of not the, the, the number one driving force. And, um, and yeah. And so I, and so I, I, wrote all the, all the, the whole thing together and I kind of, it kind of went through a few drafts and I, uh, I started sending it out. I had some reps at the time, mm-hmm. uh, different reps and, uh, I sent it to them and I was really excited about it. And, uh, they were like, nobody is going to make this movie. People hate anthology movies. You, you, you can't you, name one anthology movie. That's good. And I was like, uh, trick or treat. And they were like, "Uh, no, that was a big flop, like something else, anything. And I was like, I don't have one. Like, that's the whole point. I'm trying to do something different because I think if we can do it right, it'll be interesting and new. And uh, they said no. And so – but people were really loving the script in general. They just – nobody would pull the trigger on it. And so what I did is I was like, well, i would made a bunch of shorts before, so let's – Let's do a kickstarter let's pick one of the shorts let's pick the one that's the most contained and the most easily to produce and uh one that sort of has a nice zing to it and then let's uh raise a little bit of money and make it and show people what the movie is going to be and so i uh i picked the babysitter murders uh which was the most contained short and uh we did a little kickstarter campaign and we mm-hmm. made that in 2015 and that movie uh, did really well uh, on the festival circuit, and I uh, I got some fancy new reps out of it, and I nice. I did the water bottle tour here in Los Angeles, and people yep. were really excited, but uh, they were still a hard no on the full feature. They it was just, and, and I did I did come to find out later um, that the reason that everyone says no, even if if they're fans, is that marketing departments. Um, they don't know how to sell it, and I mm. guess marketing departments are the are ultimately the people who make the decisions on the thumbs up or the thumbs down. Wow! And so, even if an executive is is super crazy about something, if the marketing department says no, it's a pass.
0: Yeah, because um, that's the biggest expense. I mean, you can be Blumhouse you can make a two million dollar, three million dollar movie, but then twenty million dollars to market the hell out of that thing with advertising and social media and all of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and it's 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 an it's a niche movie too, I guess. Yeah, you know? and I don't think. Um, and so what happened through the course of all these meetings is I, I, I went to one meeting and, uh, an executive there named Allison Friedman was like, um, my boss would never make this movie, but I love it. And I love the script. And do you mind if I try to raise some money on the side? And I said, yes, of course, because hey. a, we just say yes to everything. And, but we don't expect anybody to come through. And, um, about six months later, she called me up out of the blue. And I was like, I was almost, almost had forgotten that we even had a meeting. And she was like. Hey, I found a little bit of money do you want to make this? And uh and I said yes, of course. So um Allison and then my producing partner Justin Ross who's made all my movies since film school. Mm-hmm. The three of us got together and started uh trying to figure out how we were going to make the movie and at the time we had met with three line producers and each one of them had basically said you need four times as much money to to actually make this movie. Wow. This is impossible to make. So people that we were going to pay to work on the movie we're basically saying we we can't even take this on it's, it's 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 not achievable whoa and so um we were sitting on a little bit of money and i was like i think if we don't start making this movie you know it's the classic like filmmaker thing it's like let's just start making it before mm-hmm. we don't have anything right and so we did we basically like really quickly kind of pulled together all the everything we know about making shorts and all of our friends who you know owed favors to us for working on their shorts and the connections we'd made being here and we, and we started making the movie and we kind of pieced together the movie piece by piece. Uh, once that started, it was about two year process um, shooting on uh, we did uh, three sort of principal shoots and then we did 12 or 13, maybe tiny little fragmented shoots. Like I painted one of the walls in my apartment uh, for pickups <laughs> and then we shot pickups against that wall. I uh, shot some stuff in my friend's backyard. Uh, me and my producer went to the woods up in Oregon and just shot some drone stuff of my nice. my friend's son riding a bike through the the town at the beginning. So there's so many parts of it that were made in the way that you, you make movies when you're, you know, in high school, yeah. just all the same, the same things that we, uh, you learn just because you don't have a choice. It's at some point you're like, well, I'm 90% through a feature film. We don't have any money left, but we still have to make this. And it has to be, it has to be great. And, and interestingly, those moments where it was just three of us in the woods uh, were the most satisfying because they kind of reminded reminded me why we do what we do. We're like, holy shit, yeah. this shot, shot with just the three of us in the woods looks like it fits right in with the shot we did with a forty person crew, which is uh it's cool and illuminating and and not to say anything against that forty person crew because they're incredible and you want that forty person crew if you can have them for sure. Yeah, but I think it's also a testament to just like being stubborn bastards about trying to get a movie <laughs> done.
0: I feel like that's what you got to be. Well, I'm sure that there's a benefit to it being an anthology film that you can kind of you can you can go through these sprints of shooting. You can sprint one, you can shoot one part and then you can put it down for a while and regroup and raise more money or whatever. And then you can pick it back up and not have to worry about actors aging and people's schedules not lining up and stuff like that. Well, I'm sure that still comes into comes into play. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean,
1: that's that's a great part, too, because you when you make a short you know you you focus all of your energy down onto this one condensed thing and so you can like you can really think you're like oh i'd like to have a poster in the background and i'll have my friend graphic design it and it will give a clue to the movie like those cool little details that like really you know add the layers to a movie where you can watch it a second time and you can yeah. see more and you'd realize that if you go to make a feature on an independent budget that stuff's just going to go out the door you're, you're shooting in 15 days like all those fun details and those little clever like tricks that you want to do that's the first thing that gets cut yeah so one advantage we did have was we were able to to do that to really like layer in the sort of the details into the production design into the background the little clues and the little hints throughout that i think made it special i mean the flip side is that no human being should be in production for two years straight when you're sort of (laughs) writing directing producing sometimes camera operating production designing I think it's like the human body can only take so much, uh, so much uh, abuse before it starts to sort of reject it altogether.
0: So right, then it becomes yeah. hearts of darkness. Well, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> As far as the look of the movie, I mean the set design and the details and the the world building was was really amazing. I mean it was it was like on a Tim Burton level, you know. Um, so how did you approach the look and feel of the movie? Because it's so detail oriented and the singularity of vision is just it's it's beautifully beautifully done. You know, it does right. not feel. Inexpensive and it does not feel like a low budget movie at all. It feels like a very big production for sure. Thanks.
1: Thanks. No, no, no. It's um. I I mean, that's that's a huge compliment. It was it was something we we clearly put a lot of time and energy into. And um, I guess my my background is the the, my background is sort of arts and sort of design and uh, Uh I'm very much of a hands on person. Uh, And I was a I wasn't worked in the sort of art department for a long time too. So. Um, I think when we went into making this movie, one of the first things we talked about was this idea of like, when you tell a campfire, it's supposed to have a campfire story type of vibe to it, right. where, like sit around a campfire, you tell a story, it's not really of a time or a place. It kind of is timeless mm-hmm. and it sort of just exists now and always. And so that was kind of mm. the emphasis to kind of lean into the period or the, or the period nature of, of the whole movie. Um, of course, that's like, So difficult to pull off on an independent budget because you can't shoot anything as it exists. Everything has to be retrofitted, painted, vintage cars. And it even comes down to what you don't think about as an independent filmmaker. You're like, oh, I had an old house and I got a cool car. We can pull this off, right? But then you forget like hair, like period hair will will take you right out of it really quickly so you need a kick-ass person to do hair you need makeup costumes have to be legit they can't be too fresh or too crisp or it takes people out so the amount of different people that have to come together to, to build a world like this is, is really staggering and i think um it was something having worked in the art department before and having a lot of experience in like how money gets spent on films i was able to uh take the but i knew that we needed to really put a lot of money into the design. And so I, from the very beginning, I started pulling money from other departments mm-hmm. and pushing that right into art department to give them what they needed to sort of pull it off. Now That being said, I didn't give them what they needed because I couldn't possibly give them what they needed to pull off this movie. So Lauren Fitzsimmons and her team of uh, the whole art team just really came together and did something special. And I think it was like once we started to create parts of the movie that looked like they did, we kind of set the bar so high that we couldn't really go backwards yeah and and so it was like it was a lot of and of course, because I had moved so much of the money in the budget towards the art department that meant we had to sacrifice time we had to sacrifice equipment we were to sacrifice crew hmm. so like there's no coverage in the movie, everything is sort of one to three takes tops, and we just had to be pl- plan it really well and sort of move to get it all to pull it off and it was scary as shit because you you know you you shoot a whole segment and that vintage house and all those props go away and you're just like, holy shit, I hope we
0: I hope, I hope we, we got, got it.
1: it. We're blazing right now, and, and I was rewriting the script on the fly as we went. And it was, it was, it was really a scary process. It was the, I joked it was the, it's the extreme sports of careers.
0: <laughs> yeah. But I mean, goddamn, did it pay off? Looking at it, I mean, there's even these little throwaway shots for like two seconds that are—you must have <laughs> agonized over—that are just every shot is just really beautifully done. So I, it's I have awesome. a
1: problem. I'm obs- I can't do anything without being obsessive about it. It's 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 a gift and a curse, like to the, <laughs> end of
0: the day. But I feel like for directors, it's so important in a lot of cases to have some sort of a visual style, a visual aesthetic. I mean there's the big ones like Wes Anderson and Guillermo del Toro and you you can see their looks. But I feel like with a lot of filmmakers their first few films it's not what they're thinking about or doing. But Mm-mm. this is such a strong strong look. I mean just it feels like you have a very established aesthetic, you know, Thanks, which is um, I mean, super cool.
1: And and those filmmakers you talked about, I think those were the filmmakers that drew me into the into the the genre and, and filmmaking to begin with. I, I I first came into it because of the aesthetic of Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson and uh Terry Gilliam and, yeah. and these these are creators that sort of were creating, you know, fantastical worlds. Mm-hmm. That was my, my my in and and since then it's been like, okay, the design is kind of the easier part. Now it's all about story and performance and how do we really elevate this into something special?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the balance between humor and horror is always difficult to achieve, but this just this movie did it in a very natural way. I mean, there are legitimately scary moments, but then there's also just like I was laughing my ass off the whole movie. <laughs> was there any approach to the balance between horror and comedy? And I've said it in a couple other episodes, but apparently the balance is eighty percent scary, twenty percent funny. But was there what was your approach to balancing humor and horror? I
1: think that percentage that percentage does. Uh the tracks. I, I, definitely, I love, uh, horror and comedy fused. And I feel like I've spent most of my career in shorts, just testing the waters, yeah. pushing it hard to horror, pushing it harder into comedy. I can say about the, when you push hard into horror, um, you're much, your six, su- your likelihood of success goes way up because the hardcore horror fans are going to be fine with the, with the straight horror. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, that's not really where my tastes lie exactly. I just have this like Spielbergy streak where I wanted to start leaning into some a little bit of comedy and a little bit of sort of fantasy. Yeah. Uh, and I've done other films that lean heavy, too heavy into that, where I'm like, oh, I'm that alienated too many people. And so I feel like the trick that I kind of came up with is I, um, I write the script as funny as I want it to be,
0: hmm.
1: and then I get my cast to perform it as serious as possible. Interesting. So the content of what is happening is humorous, but when you have great actors that are treating it straight, you get some, this weird fusion of like, you believe that they believe what they're doing and therefore, it's still working on an emotional level, but you're getting that humor kind of under the surface. Yeah.
0: And I was going to ask you about that, about how you worked with your actors on it, because it's so important as a director to make sure everybody's making the same movie. And with a movie like this, it's a very specific world, and it's a very specific tone. At least it felt that way. And across all of the different stories, it was very, very consistent. So the actors seemed to all be on the same level as far as that's concerned. But I mean, how did you get your actors on that level? I mean, how did you explain? the world, the tone, and, you know, exactly what you were going for.
1: Yeah, it was tricky because going back to sort of writing it kind of zany, um, a lot of the actors came in thinking they were playing a comedy and I had to sort of push them to be back into serious territory because of the same balance I was just talking about, Um, which became a challenge. The actors I I worked with were so fucking great across the board that it wasn't like, it didn't kill me. And, And honestly, because, again, going back to this idea of, trimming all your resources down to the bare bones, I think we didn't really have time to sort of sit down with an actor and and get them to figure out each nuance they kind of had to come bringing the base level of good. And then we could sort of work it towards great. Yeah. Um, But what I like to do uh, and this is sort of never having the sort of resources to really do a lot of like rehearsal or any of that sort of business. Um, One little trick that I found that I like uh, quite a bit is that I will, schedule one day with the actors to sort of sit down with them like over a key scene. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'll just sort of run the scene with them. And then I'll just sort of say like, all right, anything's on the table. Let's talk about it. Let's just break it wide open and talk about it and see if we can find some interesting things. And almost every single time, especially if you have some of these actors that are really collaborative, which is Mm -hmm. I think essential, um, you'll find out these little nuggets and you can actually, Start to really lean into them, and then what I'll do is once we find some really interesting components of of the scene, then I'll go off and I'll rewrite the entire character based on on that sort of. Player. Oh wow!
0: So that it's kind of it's you you rewrite it to fit the actor in a way, or fit the the, the new whatever everybody is projecting into that scene.
1: A hundred percent, and it's I, I mean I think it's like sometimes it's stuff that never comes out in the movie, but mm-hmm. it's all about like seeing a face on the screen and seeing the gears inside turning and whether or not you know what those gears are turning towards if you see them turning you understand it as human and it sort of works a little bit better and then sometimes whole character like entire character subplots will sort of blossom out of these meetings that like is, is it's it's my favorite shit like i yeah Again, like my background art and design, I worked as a special effects guy for a while in a special effects house. Like I've done all of these like spectacle things and I love that as a, as a filmmaker and a, and a huge nerd. Mm-hmm. But man, all the special effects and all the sort of wow factor in the world can't compete with a, an actor just crushing it in a scene. It's yeah. just something to watch.
0: Yeah, and the performances were great in this movie, too. And it's like you don't – I hate to say this, but with, like, horror movies, you don't always expect the best performances, especially when they're funny and a little zany, you know? Some people think they don't have to be, but the acting in this was superb. And that just makes everything work so much better. I mean, it's – how did you approach casting? What was your casting process like?
1: So – because this movie has so as a huge cast it, it, for, for the budget level, it's such a ridiculous cast. It's, it's stupid. And <laughs> uh, luckily I live in Los Angeles and I've been here for 12 years. So I know a lot of actors. So the first thing I did is start thinking who are the best actors I know and how many roles can I plug them into? Mm-hmm. And that literally took care of about 85% of the casting. Oh, that's great. Um, and I knew these people would deliver and, and, and there was a sort of a
0: familiarity
1: on set that sort of, we could pull out. I mean, some of these are just friends of mine that I have never worked with before. There's people I know socially. Yeah. Um, and then from there, uh, there there's a few key roles that we had to cast through our casting director, rich Mento, who was awesome. And he's the, he sent us Jacob, a um, who plays Jake and unprotected the second story. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had just done this movie called the kissing booth for uh, Netflix, but it hadn't come out yet. And it ended up being a phenomenon, like a couple of weeks after we got on shooting with him, but he's, He's this like young actor who just is is phenomenal. I mean, he's just great. The first day I worked with him, I was like, "Oh, he's gonna be, he's gonna be like in a Marvel movie in like three years." Like, (laughs) um, so like we had some wins like that, and of course, Clancy Brown, the crown jewel of, of the whole project, the this this character actor who I've been obsessed with for. Most of my life, I I tend to love character actors. I like people that disappear into roles, yeah, uh, more so than people that play the same thing again and again. And uh, and I and and he was one of our top picks, and was just when he read it and was interested. I was like, it was it was a staggering day, and I remember they so were like, cool. you have to go to a diner, so cool, to, to meet him. And I was like, oh, is he going to do it? And they're like, no, he's going to sit down and have lunch with you, and then decide if he wants to work with you. And I was like, fuck me, like I have to sit there with Clancy Brown and like be an interesting person like i'm so bad at being an interesting person when someone tells me to be an interesting person and uh and of course he's like you know he's a giant so it's extra intimidating and he he's like the the nicest guy in the world like i love that i don't have to lie about it that i don't have yeah. to like like he's great everyone loved him and he was like a piece of shit because right. he's actually like just he was the coolest guy and like dude's worked with the best directors in the world and has has, like, there was no trailers on this. There was no, there was nothing. There was just like us in an old house shooting this like lurch like character. And he just like brought this like energy to the set that made everybody feel so, so jazzed to be there, which I, man, I could have gone so differently.
0: That's so cool. Yeah, it's always wonderful to have that one person on set who kind of is the team leader in a way, silently. Who, Uh from a morale perspective, just keeps everybody going because you know, as a director, you're doing so many things at once. It's hard to keep that morale going. But when you have like those kind of linchpin cast or crew members who keep everybody else's morale up, I mean, you cannot put a price on that.
1: It is, and and especially like when you're trying to achieve. I don't mean ambition, but just when you're trying to do, there's like a lot of like camera tricks in this and a lot of like weird little, the, the, again, the kind of stuff that would normally get trimmed away from mm-hmm. a movie because of time. And that kind of stuff really can wear people down. I mean, it's, it's tough because we would shoot whole sequences and, and the, the crew wouldn't have any idea how it was going to come together. It was just these weird little fragmented parts and people can start to sort of uh, start losing faith or kind right. of get bumped out and get tired and people get grouchy on set Um, But luckily, because we'd had the babysitter murders and the babysitter murders is such a like uh, sort of like a a visual showpiece for what the movie was going to be. We were able to show people that and give them a little bit more confidence. Then, of course, I mean, if you can imagine those sets, like once we started shooting on those sets and people started seeing the images come across on the monitor, we started winning people over. Mm -hmm. But there's always Mm -hmm. that tricky part when you're a director and you're like you can be moving fast and you can be fun and everyone can be light and you're playing music on set um and people can have a great experience of the shoot but um that doesn't necessarily translate to a great movie and and the harder you're the the more you're trying to achieve the the harder it is to keep your your crew uh jazzed about it so
0: yeah it's about for sure I feel like that's a really important point to make because I mean, particularly with a with a movie like yours that is so detail-oriented and just agonizing over the details really makes a huge difference in the look of the movie and just those shots. Throughout the course of getting those shots, the crew might not really realize why no. they're doing what they're doing and that can cause a burnout. Whereas if they know what they're doing is actually going to be purposeful, that just gets people jazzed and helps them you know, push through it. I mean, having talked to like Roger Corman, he basically had this just keep shooting mentality. Like he would get a shot. He wouldn't look at it. He would just kind of keep on going. And I do think that that works to a certain degree. But I mean, with a movie like this one, where there is so much to shoot and so many details, I think a lot of people overlook the importance of just keeping your crew informed as to what they're creating while they're creating it, because that can boost their morale and give them a whole other surge of energy. and, And, you know, you activating their passion for the project while... While you're doing it, I feel like it's something a lot of people overlook is just showing oh, okay. the crew either the dailies or, you know, showing them what they're what they're making while they're making it. Because that's just, again, that is just fuel on the fire of their passion, whereas they easily could burn out. You know, it's one yeah. of two ways.
1: Oh, yeah, man. I mean, that's such a great point, too, because I I mean, genuinely, I'm a people pleaser anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just I want everyone to like me. It's like, I don't know what it is. Something about being from a small. I don't know. I don't know. But it's like I know what you're saying. But, <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, but, but of course n- nothing trumps like the movie I'm trying to make. So I, I, I'm constantly torn between like, is the crew happy, but I got to get this, I got to get this right. And yeah. I gotta do it. And even if people think it's, I'm insane. And so I'm constantly like battling this, this sort of back and forth. And, and you kind of start to understand why filmmakers will work with the same teams again and again, because it's people that know what you're going after and trust that you're going to get there right. as opposed to having to 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 reprove yourself to a new group of people every single time, yeah, which, which can be tiresome. And, and at some point in time, you just have to say, "They're just not going to like me right now, but they'll like me when they see it." and And, and hope that that's the truth.
0: <laughs> Hate me now, love me when you see the movie. <laughs> yeah, I, it's um, and it's tough to earn that trust as a director. You know, it's definitely tough, very, particularly early very. in your career, for sure.
1: Yes. Cause everyone, I mean, I worked on, I worked on sets as well. I've did G and E I did art department. I know what it's like to be like, I want to be the person that's directing. Why Mm -hmm. is this person directing Prove to me that you're the person that should be directing and not me like that. It feels that way on set, whether you want it to admit it or not, Yeah. you know, that once you're it flips and you're suddenly at the helm and then it becomes sort of like, yeah, I mean there, there could be a whole podcast just about sort of, personalities and and, and and set etiquette i think i could i could even learn a few things from that
0: yeah there's so much that goes there i mean there's there, you have to deal with egos in certain cases but you just also have to deal with harmony and making sure that people match properly you know personality wise mm-hmm. so many dynamics there yeah mm-hmm. yeah there was mm-hmm. probably a podcast idea there for sure <laughs> <laughs> it's funny nowadays there was just an t- a, uh, there was an article in the New York times about how horror anthologies are having a heyday right now and, and cool. th- for the longest time horror anthologies were were basically just verboten um but between mortuary collection and books of blood and nightmare cinema and scare package i mean yeah horror anthologies now it seems like people people are starting to love them again which is which is great
1: uh, yeah. yeah i mean my, this is what needs to happen enough th- the problem is is that i feel like they've drifted away from the public consciousness And so people don't know what they are. So like an uninitiated person. I mean, us horror fans know. But some people would sit down and suddenly they're watching a story and it ends and they're like, wait, what? I don't like this. This isn't what I'm used to. So like in general, we just need to get them out more. Even all the movies you you mentioned, those are all little tiny movies financed by passion more than anything else. I think maybe Books of Blood, which I saw last night actually and quite enjoyed. I enjoy
0: Um, the hell out of it.
1: Yeah, I I I've I've heard some flack. It's got some flack, but I I thought it was very cool. It seemed to have a pretty significant budget. I don't know what the the, the history is Yeah, I think it one, was up there. It was oh, it was actually I could tell it had like a TV at least budget, like, yeah. it had, like it just had the polish. Um but then like, you know, I don't think American Horror Story is an anthology show I, I for some reason I take offense to these these season long series being called anthology I wouldn't call
0: that an anthology no although it would be cool if they did an anthology season where every episode was a different story yes. Then
1: yes that would be awesome actually they might be doing that I may really? have heard doing that I think so That'd I think it's called cool. like American Horror Stories
0: Oh that's cool Yeah okay I have to be on the lookout for that
1: <laughs> I mean the tricky thing what you discover about it that was sort of enlightening to me was I knew it was going to be tricky because for the, the obvious reasons, right? Like you're telling five stories. That means you have to tell – you need five sets of characters. You need five lo- sets of locations. You know, Maybe there's multiple locations in one short. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think each one needs a climax. Climaxes tend to be sort of something you're going to spend some more time, a little more resources on to get them yeah. right because you need them to be satisfying. So I knew all that stuff going into it, and I was like, I'm down for this. I can, I can attack – this movie it's going to be hard but i think it's going to be worth it yeah the part that really caught me off guard was in the editing room because mm. you've realized that like when you're doing a traditional feature there's sort of these like certain compo- certain signposts in a movie that you have to knock out of the park and if you knock them out of the park even if you drop the ball in the rest of it the movie will people will walk away happy like if you get a great character introduction if you have a great sort of midpoint and if you have like a really stellar ending, mm-hmm. people walk out of the theater or turn off the streamer and be like, that was great. I love it. I want to tell people about it. And those moments take so much time in the editing room. That's where you put all of your energy. And hopefully the whole movie is good, right? But like mm-hmm. at least hit these, these signposts. Yeah. So what we realized with this was that like, oh, we have to hit those five signposts five times. And we can't really drop the ball in any of them. So then it became like, oh, now we have we an have uh, editing schedule that's like standard for a, a regular feature, but we have to create five sets of, of story components and they all have to be a banger or people are going to, you know, do what they always do in anthologies, immediately start attacking the weakest episode. Mm. And that's the thing that they're going to walk away talking about. Like, oh, the movie was fine, but this one episode sucked. And so there, <laughs> that like, was a stressful time where we were just like pulling all-nighters like, oh, man, we, I don't know if we can pull this off in this schedule because we just hadn't considered it. And even my editor was just like, I, I, this is so much. I'm like, I know just buckle in. We got to do it. Let's go, go, yeah. go. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. I think if anybody's thinking about attacking this kind of format is, uh, you really got to give yourself a lot of time in the editing room.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, you literally directed five movies here. I mean, yeah. it's not sugarcoated. Like that's, that's a lot. And it's a lot to think through and all those arcs and, and everything. How did you find your editor?
1: so my editor we actually had two editors on the movie um which is the case in uh, several of the positions because of how long it took us to get this movie made right which, again another reason why people shoot everything in one big go is you have one team yep um so eric ekman he was our initial editor who's again been a friend of mine for a long time he did the babysitter Murders way back oh, cool. in 2015 uh and he was like basically one of the key collaborators in the movie and like when we had to do the feature, I was like, dude, I want you to be on set every day as the script supervisor. So we'll like talk about how we're going to execute this so we can really push it and do some really interesting things. Oh, that's great. And he was on set. Um, the the downside was as we were on set, I think like two thirds of the way, I like how I'm, I'm saying this is a downside, but he um, his wife called and said she was pregnant. And uh, which is amazing. Congratulations to both of them. And they have a beautiful baby. Um, but he basically said, hey, remember how I told you in our meeting that I was down to to go to the ends of the earth with you on this thing. It turns out we got 3 months cuz I'm having a baby. And so <laughs> uh, and so we basically we we had we edited as much as we could with him and then he left and then we had to get bring in another editor uh, and we ended up finding this awesome guy named Joe Shahood. but like at that time the project was just like so many different shoots and of course we didn't organize the the footage in the way we should have up front so we had all these different hard drives hanging around and, mm. and it was just like such a massive undertaking any anytime somebody would come in to work on the project to try to like even find their way into it Whoa. because Eric had his way, way of doing it. So Joe spent weeks just trying to reconfigure things. So it worked for him and, and it was a lot to add on top of what I, you know, the already tricky aspect of, of editing five movies at once.
0: Jesus man. That's a lot throughout the course of this. Was there ever any either doubt or sort of dark night of the soul where uh, you didn't think things were going to get better? When did the difficulty was just so overwhelming either uh, yeah. on set or in post or anytime?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, many, 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 many times. I mean, I remember, yes, I remember having some times in, in Astoria, Oregon where it was like, right. Cause it rains a lot there mm-hmm. and just having not slept and soaking wet and just having no idea how we're going to sort of pull off the immense amount of shots that we're trying to, to do in a day and just feeling like, I remember actually distinctly feeling like if I was capable of having a nervous breakdown, it would happen right now. Wow. Like, genuinely. I was like th- this, everything in my body says I like, luckily I was born with the fortitude to, to not crumble and I had great parents or something, whatever it was that yeah. like, protected me in that moment. But I definitely felt like I would have a, a nervous breakdown because it was like, it just felt like such an impossible task. And you know, when you're not sleeping and when you're cold and when you're wet and it just like, it sort of builds and builds and builds um but uh but again like interesting things always come out of that like you you're you're sort of you're like forged in fire and you kind of come out the other side and you suddenly the film gods smile on you and and, and the idea hits and you figure out a way to to make a scene better than it ever was before and yeah you, you're always praying because man i i know the film gods can like bless you but it feels like they curse you more often than not it's it, it's it's rough. It's yeah. rough. And I feel like kids should know that more when they're getting excited about the glamour of, of what it is to be a filmmaker. Because you know, sometimes I'll teach a a film cl- college level film class, and I'm just like, "Is there anything else you want to do that would make you happy? Because if so, you should definitely do that." The,
0: <laughs> you, you, you gotta watch this before. film gods, man. They'll they'll forge you in fire, though. It's you come out <laughs> That's true. That's true. you come out better and sharper. Well, was there anything that got you through those really difficult moments?
1: This is going to sound real basic, but, um, there was a, uh, a juice shop in, uh, this is real, this is real, like nitty gritty on, on sort of, these
0: little things are important. A
1: little thing. Yeah. There was a juice shop in Astoria, Oregon, and they sh- would sell fresh ginger shots. And this sounds ridiculous, but a, somehow a fresh ginger shot will like, it's almost like taking, it's like the same feeling of taking a shot of vodka, Whoa. but. Not the, the drunk, but you feel it. It like surges through your veins and it feels you it, it, You feel like reinvigorated. And me and my my DP would take those and literally like it would give us just the burst we need to like keep going. And that's wow. all you need. You need that push. I know that's not the emotional answer you wanted. But no,
0: man. <laughs> all of these little tips, that's all important. So film near a oh, juice shop or get a juicer my, and, and a lot of fresh ginger on set.
1: I'm telling you, my my <laughs> dream was is that I wanted to sort of just... When you have those lows on set and everyone's like down in the dumps, just come around and give everybody a shot of ginger. And like, it has, it's, it's wild. I don't, I can't believe I'm talking about ginger on this podcast with you right now. I'm sorry ahead of time, but <laughs> no, it, no, it really, no. Really I'm.
0: If it helps one person somewhere get through their really difficult shoot, makes, makes there all it the difference. That's awesome. <laughs> so you worked with ADI on this. They did some of your effects. They did all of our effects. Uh, that's great. How did they get onto this movie? Oh man,
1: uh, yeah. It, it, it comes down to again. I think having the short that was the big, yep. the big, the big part. Interestingly, for a while after making this short, I my thought was there's literally no reason to make a short other than um, just love of the craft. Yeah. Like if you want to make a short for experience, great. But there's nothing like viable about making a short like in the in Hollywood at that given time. Um, And where that sort of turned around was when we started going out to creative collaborators because we had the showpiece that we could straight up send to someone and say like, look, you're way out of our league, but here's the thing we made and here's what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Is this interesting to you? And so what I did with the visual effect or sorry, the special effects is I I realized that we had quite uh, an insane amount for such a small movie. And I was talking to some really fantastic uh, special effects guys who I'd met sort of working in, in LA and I was like, I just don't know if, if these guys are going to be able to pull off this load that we have. I was like, I'm just going to do, I'm just going to reach out to the three best special effects companies in the world. And I'm just going to write, just pour my heart out to them and see if it's to see my, what I've got nothing to lose. Yeah. And so I reached out to three companies here in LA um, who I'm just obsessed with because I'm, I, I love practical effects and two of them got back to me. Uh, one was uh, spectral motion. Yep. And uh, they were amazing and they gave great advice. They couldn't fit us in their schedule, but like they would have, I believe, I genuinely believe they would have, they could have. And the other was 80 and they were like, well, why don't you come in and, and talk to us about it? We love the short. Maybe we can help sat down in this fancy boardroom. They have had this meeting. They were like, how much money do you have? I told them they like looked real sad and I said, yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. Let's just do it. We'll build everything we can from scratch. We'll repurpose wow. anything that we can't afford like we love the project we want to be a part of it.
0: And for the and, listeners, ADI does movies like Alien versus Predator and they do a lot of big budget stuff. They're doing King Kong versus Godzilla now. I mean, this is a this is a huge studio.
1: Oh yeah, they won a, an Academy Award for Death Becomes Her, which is one of my personal favorites. It's a good one. They also did Tremors. They designed Pennywise in the new It movies. They did uh, Starship Troopers. Their 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 shop is like the coolest place on the Oh planet. yeah. Um and uh, Alec Gillis, who's one of the two principals, he really took us under his wing uh, with the rest of his team over there. And I mean, he was right there in the trenches with us. Like, we have, there's a, a segment in the movie that involves like a, a Lovecraftian tentacle monster. Mm-hmm. And um it was one of the last things we did. And I remember calling Alec kind of in a, in a fit of panic and saying, like, I'm just really worried about this tentacle monster because tentacle monsters always look bad. And this whole short is based on this monster. If this monster gag doesn't work, the whole short falls apart. And he was like, you know what? I'm just gonna do it. And so he like personally made the tentacles, showed up on set, articulated wow. them. This is this guy is like the guy. Yeah. He's like the, he's he's awesome. But he's just you never expect to see this person showing up on your shitty little set and articulating a giant floppy tentacle arms, which uh, were repurposed from the movie Tremors, actually. Which I oh,
0: that's so cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. So like, it's those little moments that like. Going back to your last question, the, the, the real sort of more heartfelt answer to what sort of, how do you get through is you step back and you realize that all these amazing people are somehow putting their lives on hold to sort of make your dream come true. And that, if that's not enough to keep you going, then you're probably in a long, wrong line of work.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. That's a really amazing story. Whoa. Very cool. Cool. <laughs> so you guys shot in Austin and Oregon and where else?
1: Yeah, we shot. Um, so we shot most of the movie in Los Angeles. We shot. About okay. Two- thirds of the movie in Los Angeles. Um, in the babysitter murders, there is a uh, there's a slasher movie playing on the TV. Uh, and that was part of our original shoot where we shot the short off the Kickstarter money. Okay. And what ended up happening there is we had this, we shot the short, but I still needed a slasher movie and I only had like 2000 bucks. And so I was like, there's no way we can pull off a slasher movie in Los Angeles for 2000 bucks. At the, I mean, we probably could have, it just would have been really shitty. And so I, um, I'd met this guy, Joe Nicolosi and his wife, Stephanie um, on the film festival circuit. Again, going back to the, the value of being on the film festival yeah. circuit, meeting your peers. And they were in Austin, Texas, and I called him up and I love his his work. And I was like, hey, man, crazy question, but I got two grand. Can you help me make a slasher movie? And he was like, yeah, we can do that. And so I flew down to Austin, Texas. He put together an entire shoot and we shot all the components of the slasher movie plus more. We shot enough to shoot to make an entire trailer for the, the fake slasher movie. Oh, wow. Them. Um, so we ended up – and we also ended up having these amazing people from Austin, Texas in our movie. So I always forget there was like another crew in f- from the multiple crews over in Austin of, of like the best people they get over there. And then we shot um, all the stuff with um, with uh, Clancy Brown and Caitlin mm-hmm. Fisher, uh, the, the all the mortuary stuff and all the town stuff up in Astoria, Oregon, which is where they shot all the exteriors for the Goonies. Oh, wow. And, and it's just like sleepy little uh, foggy – seaside town uh, on the coast of, uh, of Oregon that's all Victorian homes and it's, it's just the coolest thing you go there and you're like why doesn't everybody shoot here yeah. I guess it's really tricky to get to but we were a tiny movie and we had a small footprint so it made it great for us and, and the people in the town really made made the movie come to life in ways that like we never anticipated like I know uh, one of the things that was really it's really tricky about a, a movie of this size is like we have all these exterior shots right there's an opening of a kid riding through town and we kept pushing those back because i was like all right we got a 40 person crew we have so much so much scene to get we can't take this whole crew to go shoot a kid riding a bike through town because it, every single shot's going to be like where are we parking the trucks where's the bathroom right. where's the food going to go it's like such an inf- such a like giant ship to sort of turn on a dime so we ended up not shooting it for the whole shoot and then at the end of the shoot i like, talked to my dp and i'm like hey man i think everyone's going to go home do you want to just stay behind and we'll just shoot all this stuff with the kid riding through town, just the two of us? And he was like, yeah. And then Justin, uh, my producer, also stayed back. And basically my friend who lived in Portland, uh, her son was about the same size as the actor in the movie. So he came down and he got on the costume and we just moved around Astoria and we shot all of those scenes of him, just a small crew of like three people. And it was wild. Like my, my producer, Justin, he like called the local car club, the vintage car club. And he's like, They made a radio announcement. anyone want to be in a movie? Show up with your vintage car at 6 (laughs) a.m. All of these people showed up, and the the police came, and they shut down the streets for us. Holy shit. And we put these vintage cars on the street, and we were just like, again, three people shooting the entire opening of this movie with with nothing else. And it was like the coolest. We got on the trolley, and they they ran the trolley back for us, and we shot off the trolley. So cool. We got to shoot on the bridges, and just that kind of thing you just can't do. Uh, in any city where, where filming is, is the norm.
0: Yeah. I feel like that's the magic of shooting in small small little cities and towns that don't get a lot of film attention is yeah. like they all rally to help you and you can get, just get magical production value out of that. You know, you're not yeah. going to get that in L.A.,
1: No, no, nothing like that. And and genuinely, I really loved the people we were working with, too. It wasn't even just like, well, they're giving us their cars. It was like, oh, these are like, these people are awesome. They're like my friends forever now. I want to like just stay in Astoria and make everything there.
0: That's so cool. That's really cool. So you're working on something with Sam Raimi right now. Or yeah. you 50, 50 States of Fright. Is that out, by the way? I've am I'm not, I'm not jumped on the Quibi bandwagon yet.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, apparently a lot of people haven't jumped on the Quibi bandwagon.
0: Um, <laughs> I keep um, meaning yeah. to, but yeah, I've not gotten there yet.
1: Well, I would say this. Uh, it's definitely worth checking it out for this series alone. I, I do think uh, 50 States of Fright is, yes, it changed the name um, not long ago. But 50 States of Fright is a, uh, a horror anthology series that is being produced by Sam Raimi and mm-hmm. um, the conceit behind it is really cool in that like, I mean, the, the conceit is basically like one urban legend uh, horror story for every state in the country. That's cool. That's fine. But I think what's real even cooler than that is that Sam is personally basically selecting the filmmakers. He brings you out to Vancouver with issue and he gives you, he lets you write and direct and he gives you a, a budget and he says like, just go wow. and you get to just make Sort of w- like what would normally be one of my little tiny shorts, but like with a full TV, like s- budget and schedule that like, honestly, is it was staggering to me when I got there. I'd, I'd never seen that many people on a set before. Wow. You know, on this like little short film. And, um, and and what's cool about it is it's like I think it's the only anthology thing that's happening right now at a real budget level where like filmmakers are just are allowed to play. And, and mm. sort of and, and make, you know, you, you have to do it within like three days still, mm-hmm. you still have to like pull it off on the schedule. But like Sam protects us and, and let us do what we wanted. And I think the first season is is really cool. And it's still getting its sort of uh, sea legs. I think by next season, uh, if there is a next season, I think it's going to be definitely something people are going to take notice of. But you got to get on Quibi to see it, which is sort of the tricky part and the hard sell for most people. But Yeah, no, that's
0: all I need to hear to get on it. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. Cool
1: and i did an episode of that last last season it was um it's called uh scared stiff it's uh oregon mm-hmm. i said oregon um because of how much i fell in love with the story i was like i'm going to keep keep doing oregon stuff um and then i wrote two more episodes for uh season 3 um which hopefully starts shooting in a couple of months
0: oh that's great so yeah. what's it been like working with uh mr ramey
1: i mean I-, I wish i could say that he's a nightmare but he's amazing he's like exactly <laughs> the- the the I don't know I don't know why I wish I would say that but he, the the never meet your heroes thing turned out not to be true for yeah. Sam right he, he is the guy that that made me want to do it in the first place and he's the humblest most nicest guy you will ever meet and that is like 100 factual I was just talking to another filmmaker that's making a movie right now and he's like I can't believe it I'm talking to Sam every night on the phone on the script Holy and he's shit. like so fucking nice and I'm like I know it's crazy he's he's he doesn't like He's not like a big like showboatie like glad-handing type of guy. He's like yeah. real salt of the earth and like just if you he'll he'll have a really like in-depth conversation with anybody who's who's interested in talking to him. And he's just the coolest. It's it's definitely a dream come true for sure.
0: That's so wonderful to hear. Yeah. I'm not surprised. You know, I've seen him at conventions and things like that. And he is just so present with fans and talking to people and and yeah. Yeah. He it's... introduced
1: himself like the when it, when I went to meet him, he said Hi, I'm Sam Raimi. I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's what? awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. He, he spoke very highly of uh mortuary collection, obviously.
1: He did, which was great. I mean, he was, he's a, the mortuary collection was I hadn't made the mortuary collection when I did 50 States of Fright, but he saw it as like right before we went to shoot and he's was just such a like huge supporter of, yeah. of the movie to begin with. Um, yeah. That's, that's surreal. I, I forget he even has a quote on the movie that's how like how wild it is
0: that's amazing well last few questions um so you're you're a, obviously a writer and director do you have any sort of a consistent writing practice like do you try to hit like that stephen king 2000 word minimum a day or what is your approach to writing
1: my approach has been really scattershot for a long time right like in fits and bursts mm-hmm. uh, i procrastinate for a long time and then i write a, a ton at once uh, the best thing that's ever happened to me, I think, is that I started writing with a writing partner. Ooh, that sort of keeps me in check.
0: Yeah,
1: um, and we have a pretty cool system in place, which is um, we kind of based our entire system around coming up with with ideas. And when I say ideas, I don't mean like an idea for a movie, but I mean like just throwing as many ideas as possible out there and trying to find the most interesting way to sort of tackle every scene. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is we do a um, we do like a Google Doc. Uh, so we first, we just everything, we do like verbal discussions, uh, over the phone or in person back when we could meet in person. And then we do like a Google doc where we start sort of just putting scenes in like slug lines. I think it's really cool if you can figure out like a log line approach to a scene because it make it forces you kind of to figure out what the scene is. Um, and then we sort of, uh, once we have a basic outline for a movie, we just start going back through and just every scene, we just, we get to it and we go, okay, this is cliche. What's something different we could do? What about something else? And inevitably, we start to sort of – starts to snowball and we start to take tangents and the entire script starts to alter. And we try to figure out as many of those scenes as possible. But then at some point – and this is where a co-writer is great. At some point, we're like, all right, let's just start writing because we could do this forever. Um, and then we'll basically take all those slug lines and we'll drop them right into uh, – we use Writer Duet, which is like a – do you know Writer Duet?
0: No, no. What is that? Software? Writer-
1: yeah. It's like a, it's like an online writing software where you can sort of share the same screen. Oh, cool. I think final draft does it, but we've never been able to get it to work. So we, we do writer do <laughs> And, uh, and we basically will go in and we'll drop all the slug lines in and then, um, we'll sort of, he'll, he'll start doing a pass and then I'll sort of rewrite it from scratch myself because ultimately I have to direct it. So it makes the most sense for me to try to manipulate it into sort of what I ultimately want it to be. And we, we, Somehow this system that I don't know why I'm giving you so many de- details about, but no, it's all system it. has made it so we can write really fast. We, we have a lot of ideas and we are able to generate pages really quickly and, um, and we just keep doing passes on them and just really attack it scene by scene and, and mm-hmm. try to think of a way to make a scene interesting. Cause that's the thing that happens in horror, especially luckily my, my co-writer is not a big horror guy, so he doesn't fall into some of the traps that like mm. us hardcore horror fans can right but I'm really adamant about not writing if if you wrote a scene and it's it's a scene you've seen 30 times before you, you're doing it wrong you have to find something interesting to, to keep the audience engaged and so that's the big challenge and, and we're finishing up a script now and, and we're going back through and we're like what taking asking the hard questions like is this scene a cliche like mm-hmm. it was easy to write is it a cliche is there a better way to do it sometimes you' did sometimes you nail it right away but sometimes, you need to like you know go back in, and, and sometimes your house of cards crumbles a little bit. But, but I think the planning process has been uh, sort of great to, to. I know a lot of people take the uh, the vomit approach. Right. I don't. I would do the vomit approach because I think the idea of having to start from the beginning and do it all over again would be too overwhelming for me. So I think a plan a plan makes is, is better for my I think my brain.
0: Yeah. And having a writing partner, though, I mean, that just adds the whole level of accountability to it, which, like, for a lot of writers, that's two-thirds of the game is the accountability. And just getting yourself to fucking sit down and do it, you know, as opposed to idea flow and writer's block. Like, usually that ain't the problem. It's actually sitting down and doing the writing. So having a partner, that's got to be a game changer.
1: It is. And I'm, I'm, I'm like... I'm a social person anyway. I much prefer to be around people back when the world was normal. I would go to coffee shops and the yeah. busier, the louder, the better for me. I, I, I like the, the stimulus. So, so it's, it's kind of been, it's been essential for me.
0: Yeah. So coming off of this movie, which is, I mean, huge five movies in one, <laughs> any, uh, any other big directorial or filmmaking lessons that we haven't touched on yet that you, you took from this experience. Ooh. Um, God, I mean, I I feel like
1: I wished I'd recorded myself. I had this dream at the beginning that I was gonna do uh, like a like a a testimonial in front of the camera every morning, just because I knew that this movie was gonna be such a beast to pull off. Yeah, and uh, and it was, and I didn't do that, and I regret it so much because it was such a constant barrage that like y- you don't even have time to dwell on, right. on what you learned. Um. I don't I don't know. I don't know if I have a good answer for that. If you ask me a more specific question, I might be able to get you.
0: All right. Well, looking at this common, one of my common questions, but looking at the finished picture, what would you have invested more in and what would you have invested less in? Not necessarily money, but it could be time or money or effort or energy. But what would you have spent more on and what would you have spent less on overall?
1: I guess I would say that I would write. Um, one of the things that I like to do that I think – works the best in this movie is when I would write a scene. This is something I would do sometimes if I had time to, uh, to really to do it, but I would write a scene as if I wasn't allowed to have any dialogue in the scene. Hmm. Like what if I needed to write this entire movie without any speaking? Yeah. Um, And I think that really forces you to think visually in a way that we're not, we're not really accustomed to doing unless you've really been doing it for a long time. And I think some of the best stuff, like you'll back yourself into a corner. But if you're like, I have to figure out how to do this yeah. with visuals, uh, if you can do that and you can work, make most of your movie work that way, I think the movie will be a success, and I think the dialogue will become sort of uh, ice or uh, like a spice spice on the cake.
0: Were there any uh, books or resources or anything that was particularly helpful for you from a creative perspective or a uh, just overall career perspective?
1: Yeah. Um, I love the Truffaut on uh, Hitchcock book. Um, I love Stephen King's On Writing. That's a go-to, I think, oh, for yeah. everybody. Everyone, everyone should read that book. Uh, totally. Even if you're not a writer, it's worth it. Oh, yeah. Um, Screenwriting-wise, um, I'm a big fan of Sid Field's Writer's Workbook. Are mm-hmm. you familiar with that one?
0: No. I know Sid Field's work pretty well, but I don't know the Writer's Workbook.
1: So Sid Field's Writer's Workbook is very similar to his, like, the go-to book, only the writer's workbook ends each chapter with a exercise. And if you do each exercise in order, by the time you've finished the book, you've written a feature of screenplay. Oh, that's cool. Um, and there are, that that's a bit of a because there are parts and it's like, and now write the middle, but, <laughs> uh, but it did, Thanks, I find sir. that book to be, that, that book was the most helpful in just understanding structure because what you kind of learn, if you grew up, if you grew up Amish and you have never seen movies, you have a, a whole other challenge ahead of you. And maybe you make even more interesting movies, honestly. But maybe. I think most of us were already kind of trained to to in the format. We just need some sort of book to kind of highlight it for us to get us started. Mm-hmm. And that was a great one for me. And I think, like again, I uh, save the cat is a is a go to. I think for like a super fun, super simple, super quick read. Yeah. That, that I reference. I haven't referenced it for a while, but like I've definitely gone back to that one a few times. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's it. I, I think. I've got all the books, but those are the ones that sort of ping for me as like just really incredible, incredible reads and, and worthwhile for any filmmaker. Okay, great,
0: great. So what are you working on next? What is next for you?
1: Yeah, so I'm, again, I'm doing the two, two episodes of the 50 states of, of Fright, hopefully. Right. Um, I'm finishing up another feature right now, uh, writing. Uh, and I'm attached to um, write and direct a segment of a horror anthology movie for um, MGM. That's Oh, that's sweet. great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, just, just uh, looking for the next thing, I think. It's like all, all of us, we're, we're always sort of trying to find that project. I'm, I'm kind of uh, obsessive once I sort of lock in. Mm-hmm. to the actual directing aspect um and uh, i wear horse blinders so it's like i have to be careful about which project that i tackle because it's sort of you're going
0: to go all in
1: uh, uh yeah yeah which is great i think i i tell people i'm like it's it's terrible when you're trying to get me to look at your project and i'm on something else but i think it's the best if i'm working on your project because i'm probably not going to sleep until it's the best thing i can possibly produce and so it's weird it's it's a weird it's a weird career choice because you have to I envy the people that just scatter shot. They're like, "Oh, this project sure, let's do it." And they just kind of casually slip in and slip mm-hmm. out. And, and some of the people I know who do that have the most robust and they're the most successful, for sure. Really. But, um, but I'm not that person, for sure.
0: Well, I mean, the results speak for themselves, you know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you'll have a much better, much more thorough movie if you just you, you can always tell the filmmakers who put their everything into into their films, you know. So that always that always comes across for sure,
1: yeah. I agree, I agree with that.
0: Yeah, well, Ryan, this was a real pleasure, man. Great to finally sure. meet you and huge congratulations. Any uh, any parting words of wisdom for those aspiring filmmakers out there?
1: Oh man, uh, man, what can I say that uh, Mark Duplass hasn't already said in the <laughs> Calvary's not coming speech, really? <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that, like, I guess the co- the common go to is to say to just get out there and do it. And that's true to some degree. Yeah. Um. But I would say, uh, find, find your tribe, find people that want to make movies. They don't have to even want to make the movies you want to make, but find people to collaborate with, because this is kind of a lonely career. And it's people can tend to Get so caught up in their own and their own thing that they are, they're living on islands, and, mm-hmm. and we don't work together. And, and especially creatives, I think creatives can get so separate from each other that you know the the suits that make the decisions kind of dictate how we live our lives, and we end up um, not doing things the way we we wish we had. And I think find those people that inspire you and that you can inspire and and work with them, and and let's let's take back this industry.
0: Yeah. Hey man, I'm I'm with it. <laughs> <laughs> rally cry let's go rally cry (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome ryan thank you again
1: nick this is awesome man again i'm a huge fan i think this podcast is great i I guess if you've listened to the podcast as long as you have then you know that this is a a great thing to to sort of to have on your on your playlist
0: thanks though man i really appreciate it thank you and thank you for listening for sure
1: no Cool, cool. Thank you so much for having me, dude. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep fighting the good fight, my man.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So much to unpack here. Here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Ryan Spindell. Number one, choose where to invest wisely. Ryan spent a substantial portion of Mortuary Collection's budget on production design, and you can very clearly see this as money well spent on the screen, as the movie has a very detailed and beautifully designed handcrafted look to it. In order to make this investment, Ryan did have to take money away from some other parts of the movie's budget. Ryan shot less coverage and had to do fewer takes, but as a result of the investment, the movie has a killer look to it, and nobody noticed the lack of coverage or fewer takes. So take note of the fact that there are parts of your movie's budget that you can cut without the audience noticing it. If you want one part of your movie to really stand out, figure out where you can cut budget and invest in that. Number two, this is a big one. It never hurts to ask. Mortuary Collection had some pretty great centerpiece practical effects in it, which were done by Amalgamated Dynamics. Amalgamated Dynamics, also known as Studio ADI, is a legendary effects company. They do $100 million movies like Jurassic World, It, The Predator, and other huge blockbusters. They were clearly an effects studio that were well outside of Ryan's budget, but he cold emailed them, and in the end, they agreed to do the movie despite the lack of budget. This is a big testament to the fact that so many movies, particularly low-budget movies, come together because of a bunch of mini-miracles. I've heard many stories about indie filmmakers with a no-budget movie who approach someone well above their budget and somehow persuade them to get involved. When it comes to making this happen, it's important to remember that the real currency here is passion. To get someone out of your league to do your movie, they have to be passionate about your project, and they have to see that passion in you. A lot of people in Hollywood, particularly established players, are getting tired of working within the studio system and they hunger for something new, fun, and different that reminds them why they got into this business in the first place. If your project can give them this opportunity, you might have a shot of getting someone on board who can boost the quality of your project by a quantum leap. This is why it never hurts to ask. So aim for the fences and make those big unreasonable pie-in-the-sky requests. The worst people can do is say no, but the best thing that can happen is they say yes. Number three, you need an asset. Getting mortuary collection made was a very long road. One of the keys that opened doors to Ryan was the short that he shot for the babysitter murders. Ryan kickstarted the short, which acted as a critical asset for him when he was pitching the movie because he had a tangible sample of what the rest of the film would look and feel like. If you pitch your movie to people by sending them a script, I hate to say it, but there's a really good chance they will not read it. But when you have something that somebody can watch that demonstrates your voice, your vision, and your ability to execute, it can be pretty helpful. This is yet another case for shorts as well as a case for just getting started. Have something in the can that shows that you're the real deal because collaborators and investors want to know that they're working with someone who can finish the project. So figure out what your asset is for your movie and make it. There's a good chance it will open doors for you. Number 4. Don't listen to the masses when Ryan first set out to make the mortuary collection, he was told by his reps that nobody likes anthology movies, they don't make money, and that he should abandon the project. First of all, this hatred for subgenres seems to happen more in horror than any other genre. First, people were shitting on found footage, and then horror comedies, and now horror anthologies. Don't listen to any of it. Yes, it's important to consider the marketability of your movie. But most of this thinking is short-sighted. As we all know, horror anthologies are making a huge comeback now. And there was even an article in the New York Times about how it's the heyday for horror anthologies. Had Ryan listened to the naysayers, he'd missed out on this golden era for horror anthologies and we would have been cheated out of the mortuary collection. So let the haters hate and make your movie anyway. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor, that's I am Nick Taylor, and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.